Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Geraldine Dawson for the first episode of a two-part series. Geraldine is director of the Duke Center for Autism and Brain Development and the Duke Autism Clinic in Durham, North Carolina, in the United States. We're going to dive deeply into autism spectrum disorder, and I'm personally absolutely fascinated by this. Geraldine obtained her bachelor degree in psychology from the University of Washington in Seattle, followed by a PhD in developmental and child clinical psychology from the same institution, and completed postdoctoral work in clinical psychology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Dawson is William Cleland Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University, where she's also Professor of Pediatrics and Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience. She currently directs the National Institutes of Health Autism Center of Excellence at Duke University, focused on a translational digital health and computational approach to autism screening tools, outcome measures, and brain-based biomarkers. The good doctor served as president of the International Society for Autism Research and was founding director of the University of Washington Autism Center. Geraldine has received multiple honors, including the American Psychological Association Distinguished Career Award, the Association for Psychological Science Lifetime Achievement Award, Clarivate Top 1% Cited Researcher Across All Scientific Fields, as well as the National Institutes of Health Top 20 Research Advancer multiple times. When she has spare time, it's frankly astonishing that she does, she enjoys gardening and bird watching. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today on the podcast, Professor Geraldine Dawson. Welcome. Well, I'm very happy to be here and look forward to talking. So let's start at the very beginning. What led you to pursue an academic career in psychology and, uh, and to your focus on autism? Well, even as a child, I've always been interested in human behavior. You know, what makes us tick? What makes us different? Um, How can we explain why, you know, one person is shy and another person is outgoing? So that's always been a fascination for me. Um, Then as an adolescent, it just so happened that I had neighbors that had twins who were autistic. These were six-year-old boys. Neither could speak. And I was called upon to take care of them um, every weekend for quite a long time. And um, I just fell in love with these these two precious boys. And um, again, with my interest in human behavior, I was fascinated. Um, why, why, you know, why were they so different? Why couldn't they talk? Uh, why did they have the behaviors that they were exhibiting? And then when I entered graduate school and I began my clinical training, the first case that I saw was a child diagnosed with autism. And this was so long ago that at that point, autism was considered a rare condition. And in fact, it was so rare that they flew Eric Schopler, who was then a professor at the University of Chapel Hill, where there was a major autism center. They flew this person to University of Washington and had a grand rounds just on this one little boy. And so with that little boy, there were two things that happened for me. One is that intellectually, I was very interested in how could it be that the child could come into the world and not 
be able to form, you know, typical kinds of social interactions and relationships. And, you know, what explains that? And at that time, we knew very little about the parts of the brain that actually regulate social behavior and our ability to understand and process social information. So it was truly a mystery from a scientific point of view. And I particularly was interested in the brain and and how differences in brain function might explain this. And then it also captured my heart because we really had very little to offer the family. Um, I could not really advise the family how to help the child learn to talk or interact. We had no you know, robust and, and empirically validated therapies that were known at the time. And so I decided then and there that I would dedicate my career to this. And I've never looked back. I, I have very much enjoyed it. I think we've made progress. Uh, we certainly have a long ways to go. Well, so let's dig into autism. Um, and I, listen, going back to what you've said, I, I'm always fascinated by how one incident can change the course of a clinical career. One, one patient experience that touches us, one highly inspirational teacher. Um, and yours, I, I, can, I, can, I can't begin to imagine how powerful that must have been. But our audience are primarily healthcare practitioners, but we also have many interested lay people who listen in. Autism and associated conditions seem to me anyway to be, shall we say, fashionable diagnoses. that They're possibly overused and certainly misunderstood. So can you please characterize exactly what does and does not constitute being on the spectrum? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And I, I can understand why there's confusion and questions because there's so much variability in um, how each uh, autistic person may I- exhibit different behaviors and their skills and ability. Um, in all cases, every individual has some challenges in the area of social interaction. So reading social cues, understanding the back and forth and reciprocity of relationships, uh, using nonverbal behaviors such as facial expressions and gestures. And then in addition, each individual exhibits what we call repetitive or restricted range of behaviors. So for example, this could be stereotype motor behaviors such as hand flapping um, or other kinds of repetitive motor behaviors, or it could be repetitive interests and restricted interests, such as having a very strong interest in a, in a circumscribed topic and wanting to talk about that and focus their time and, uh, on that specific topic. So those are the two major categories of behaviors that are required for a diagnosis of autism. However, we also know that um, in addition to autism, there can be a wide range of language skills. So language ability is actually considered a co-occurring condition. So some of those individuals who have some challenges with social interaction and show those repetitive and restricted range of activities they also have a range of language abilities from very good language skills where there's no impairment to never being able to speak. So 30% of people on the autism spectrum never use spoken language. And similarly, there can be differences in co-occurring intellectual disability from 
people who are highly intelligent have no intellectual uh, disability to people who are severely affected in terms of their intellectual skills. So you can imagine that if you have a child or adult for that matter with autism who has both you know, autism, language disability, and intellectual um, disability, that is a very different condition than someone who's solely um, having some challenges in the area of social interaction and displays a re repetitive and restricted range of activities. So that helps to explain. And I'll just add one more thing here, which is that um, autism is also associated with uh, very frequently with psychiatric co-occurring conditions. So for example, depression, anxiety, um, ADHD. So about 50% of individuals on the autism spectrum um, also have ADHD. So, you know, each individual is going to be very different depending on um, whether they have these, these co-occurring condition. And then also the, the degree of the autism characteristics that they're exhibiting as well. Yeah, I have friends who have uh, children with very severe autism, and I know what it's meant for those family members. So, yeah, I, thank you for the clarity. And I think we as clinicians need to do more to utilize exact scientific terms in an exact scientific manner and promulgate that. So, let, Jonathan, can, can you dive into etiology? I believe that the whole awful Wakefield mumps, um, measles, rubella vaccine affair has been totally disproven. And I do recall reading that there was a suggestion autism might be a function of some intrauterine traumatic event. Can, can you educate us? First of all, actually, if you can address the whole, you know, vaccines cause autism stuff. Yeah, there, there is no epidemiological evidence that uh, vaccines are the, the cause of autism. So that's true that, that um, you know, as we've seen, for example, an increase in prevalence over time, uh, this cannot be explained um, by vaccines. The, the way it, I, I think it's best to understand the causes of autism is to think about all the factors that could influence how the brain develops because there isn't one cause of autism. There's many factors that contribute to how the brain is developing. So let's begin with genetics. We know that genetic factors play a major role. And these include what we call common genes. So these are genes that are very frequent in the general population um, that have some association with autism, as well as there are uncommon green genes or what we call rare genes that when they are present tend to have a very significant effect. In fact, in some cases you could explain the cause of an individual's autism specifically by a single rare mutation. Um, but there's also environmental factors that are influencing brain development and interacting with these genetic factors. So think about all the things that could influence a baby's developing brain. During the prenatal period, this could range from medications the parent is taking, you know, trauma, if there was some traumatic event that happened during pregnancy, you know, that influenced the brain development of the, of the fetus. 
This could also include um, things in the environment, such as air pollution and pesticides. We know these affect brain development. Um, also, if the parent, um, the mother in this case, has an infection during pregnancy or, or has stress, all of these things have been shown to influence brain development. So if you imagine that there's a vulnerability due to genetic factors that interact then with a wide range of factors that occur during the pregnancy period that influence brain development, then that, you know, explains, you know, how um, we could see a variation in brain development that could then lead to, to autism. Well, um, thank you very much for that. And, you know, to go back to the vaccine uh, story, certainly during COVID, as we were dealing with uh, the vaccination issue there. And I was talking about this and from a public health perspective, and some of the hate mail I got was, um, and of course, driven by pseudoscientific beliefs. I, it's, it's deeply concerning. So um, your early studies documenting autism symptoms during infancy were pretty groundbreaking. Can you share some of the key signs associated with autism that you identified in infants? And you mentioned the, the hand flapping thing, if you can also expand on that. So when I began um, our studies in the 1990s, at that time, people believed that autism could not be diagnosed until a child was capable of developing language, uh, developing imaginary play, and these were the, the features that the diagnostic criteria emphasized. Uh, what we did was to look at home videotapes that parents had taken of their infants, uh, and these were of children who then later had a diagnosis of autism versus children who did not have an, uh, a diagnosis of autism, and look backwards and look at what those videotapes looked like at, at 10 months of age, at, at 12 months of age. And we discovered that those infants who went on to have a later diagnosis of autism uh, behave very differently. So even by 10 months of age, they were not orienting when their name was called. Um, they were not developing communicative babbling. You know, we know that babies during the infant period, they start to use sounds like baba and mama, and they use these in a very communicative way. Um, these babies were not making eye contact, developing gestures that we start to see emerging in the second half of the first year, such as pointing and showing. Um, they also were playing with toys in a different way. So they were um, much more likely to focus on details of a toy and not use toys in a functional way. So it was clear that autism begins in terms of the behavioral manifestation, at least during the, the second half of the first year of life. And now we have confirmed this using prospective studies of infants who have a higher likelihood of an autism diagnosis by virtue of the fact that they have an older sibling in the family that has a diagnosis of autism. So we know, for example, that in a family, if, if one child already has a diagnosis of autism, that the chances that the second child uh, will receive a diagnosis are about one in five. And that's compared to, you know, one in 36 in the general population. 
So there have been many, many studies now, including some uh, conducted, you know, by myself and my coworkers, where we have followed infants prospectively that have this higher likelihood of developing uh, or having a, a later diagnosis of autism. And then we can look backwards and we can look at the measurements that we took early on and see these differences. And in fact, what we found in those home videotapes has been replicated now in these prospective studies. And the emphasis now in the field is developing tools for recognizing autism in infants. And and in fact, we um, have a range of therapies that we can offer um, during the infant period that can stimulate early social and language development. And these are still very early in their, uh, you know, their development. There's only been one or two randomized clinical trials of these infant interventions. But uh, the work that we did back in the 1990s, you know, using home videotapes really laid the, the groundwork uh, for the work that's going on now with infant interventions. You mentioned, if I heard you right, the incident was one in 36. And I think you also said that the incidence was increasing. What's going on? Because one in 30, that's common. It is um, very common. You're right. Um, so we, we do believe that we have become better at diagnosing uh, autism over time. And, and it is true that the definition of you know, who is on the autism spectrum has expanded somewhat, uh, but it's mostly accounted for by better detection. So for example, you know, 30 years ago, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics here in the United States, it's not recommending that all children be screened for autism at 18 months. That currently is the recommendation. So you imagine now Rather than waiting, you know, until a child is six and and only being able to pick up on more severe cases, in the United States, we're literally screening every child as they come through and they're seen by the general pediatrician. So clearly, we're going to be able to pick up on, um, you know, more cases, and we're also better at at uh, detecting. Uh, individuals who do not have intellectual disability. So when when a child has autism and has language impairment and intellectual disability, the behavioral manifestations are much more obvious than if the child only has the diagnosis of autism without those uh, co-occurring conditions. Um, And now about 60% of the population, this is in the United States based on the CDC, Um, 60% of the autism population does not have intellectual disability. And if you looked back at the uh, rates of intellectual disability in the population that was being identified many decades ago, you would see a much higher uh, prevalence of individuals with intellectual disability. So that that group of individuals without an intellectual disability are being um, detected and captured now in our prevalence uh, estimates. Interesting. So um, you, you mentioned early research. You co-created the Early Start Denver model with Sally Rogers, an, an empirically validated early autism intervention. 
Can you tell us more about this model? What, what was the intervention? This intervention capitalizes on the natural play that occurs between a, an adult and a child. So before uh, we had these, what are called naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions, and the Early Start Denver model is one of these NDBIs, we now call them. Um, the intervention that was used was uh, fairly traditional applied behavior analysis. And uh, traditional applied behavior analysis uh, asks the child to perform a behavior such as imitation, it'll say to the child, do this, and then they would give the child a reinforcer and um, hope that that behavior then would be repeated. The way in which a, an intervention like the Early Start Denver model works is to interact with the child in a much more naturalistic way and to capitalize on the child's natural interest and preference and follows the, the child's lead and enter into their play activity. So for example, if you were using a traditional approach uh, through applied behavior analysis and you were trying to facilitate something like eye contact, you would say, look at me. And when the child looked at, at you, you would give them something like, it could even be an edible. Whereas with a naturalistic approach like the Early Start Denver model, we might be playing with an object with a child that the child is very interested in and then hold that object up near the face. And then when the child spontaneously looks to the adult, then hand the, the object back and play with it with the child. So if you were to look at what the therapy looks like, um, you would see a very natural pattern of social interaction. The other way to think about this is that what we're doing is we're enhancing the fit between the autistic child's differences and the way that they perceive the environment, their sensory sensitivities, their communication style, and the way that we're interacting. So for example, we know that um, many autistic people are easily overwhelmed by sensory input. They are easily over aroused. So we teach parents and therapists use strategies that can modulate that interaction so that it is at the optimal level of arousal. So you're not going to be overstimulating the child. You're going to be very sensitive to the kinds of interactions that draw the child in, that the child enjoys. And then as you um, enhance that fit and that, that social interaction, you use that platform to teach all the different skills that the child needs to learn. The use of gestures, the use of eye contact, the use of language and communication. Uh, but it's done in this very naturalistic and relationship-focused way. Interesting. So going back a number of years, your lab demonstrated that early interventions associated with increased activity in social brain circuitry in children with autism. Uh, that finding was recognized by Time magazine as a top 10 medical breakthrough of 2012. Can you tell us a bit more about that, please? Well, as you recall from the beginning of this interview, I was very interested in understanding the brain basis of autism. 
And when I started in the field, we knew very little about the parts of the brain that allow us to interpret facial expressions, to under even recognize faces, to uh, interpret gestures and other nonverbal behaviors. We know a lot about that um, now. For example, we know that the fusiform gyrus is a specific part of the temporal lobe that is needed to recognize faces. Uh, the superior temporal sulcus is also a part of the temporal lobe, and it's necessary for interpreting behaviors such as eye contact and facial expressions. So we could probe whether these areas of the brain are developing in the typical way by using electrophysiology. So when I began my work, what we could do is to present stimuli such as faces or, faces or facial expressions to a young toddler, either with an, a diagnosis of autism or a neurotypical toddler, and we could record how is their brain responding when they, they see this face or this facial expression. And what we would see in a, in a neurotypical toddler is that when you show that child a face, that area of the temporal lobe lights up. And you can measure this with uh, what are called event-related uh, brain potentials. You can measure the speed at which, and also the amplitude at which that brain is responding when it sees a face or a facial expression. Now we, and we showed and published studies that, that um, indicated that in autism, these very fundamental parts of the brain that allow us to recognize facial expressions and faces and so forth um, were developing differently. And we even showed this in those uh, prospective studies of infants where we could see by six months of age, these areas of the brain that allow us to understand social information were not developing in the typical way in babies who went on to have a diagnosis of autism. So we hypothesize that um, these areas of the brain um, were not uh, inherently dysfunctional, but rather because the child was not engaging in social interaction, these areas of the brain were not getting the normal kind of stimulation that they need to develop in a typical way. And we hypothesize that if we could provide early intervention where we could draw the child into social interactions by, again, enhancing the fit between the adult and the child. And we could provide that stimulation in terms of social uh, interaction and so that those areas of the brain would get the proper kind of stimulation needed to develop in a typical way, that we could measure this using, again, electrophysiology or EEG. And that's what we showed. We conducted a study that was a randomized uh, clinical trial where a group of toddlers, this started at, these uh, toddlers were 18 months when they began, and we provided early intervention, the Early Start Denver model, uh, for two years uh, to one group, and the other group received just whatever the natural, typical um, intervention that they would get in the community if they were not in the study. And then at the end of that two-year period, we measured the brain responses to the social stimuli. And we showed that the children who had received the uh, 
the intervention. Now we're showing robust um, neural responses to social information. And it really um, changed the way in which we thought about autism because we realized that this is a very dynamic condition that is shaped by experience and also um, showed the power and impact of early intervention in influencing uh, brain development. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you for being with us, Geraldine, and I look forward to continuing our discussion next week where we will delve deeper into brain circuitry related to face processing in young children with autism and the world of artificial intelligence. So folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Like us on social media. Join us next week for this fascinating episode to be continued. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia, and I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye for now.